I have a question for you. See if you're awake. Have you, have you made a Jewish person jealous this past week? And if not, why not? And you're saying, is the pastor off his meds again? <laughs> Let me ask a related question. How many of you have thought this week about how important God's dealings with Israel are to your future? It absolutely is very vital to your future, how God is dealing with Israel right now. I hope that after this message, we will all be more mindful and prayerful about Israel's future. As we see what the scriptures say about God's plan for Israel's future and its impact for the future of the world, which includes your future. And the underlying question is, can we trust in God's promises in his word? Can we trust in what God has promised to do? So as we continue our journey through Romans, we're into this section where God, Paul talks quite a bit about God's plan for Israel. So we're going to look at verses 11 through 16 in chapter 11 today. Chapter 11, verses 11 through 16. So we'll read that text, and um, I'll ask you to stand at least one more time if you can do it for the reading of God's word. Romans 11, 11 through 16. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they, they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles in as much as then I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Father, we confess your word is true, it's great, it reveals to us what we need for life and godliness. And it's sometimes, including this morning, is hard to understand, hard to recognize how to, how to interpret it, how to apply it. So we need your spirit. We've worshipped you, we've communed with you. Father, now feed us with what we need from this text. By your spirit, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So in verse 11 of the chapter, Paul asks, did Israel stumble that they might fall? In other words, did Israel reject Christ so as to fall, to be permanently rejected by God? Because they had so much privilege being God's chosen people, and God had given them so much to prepare them for Christ, since they rejected him, is God finished with them? Did Israel reject the gospel only to be cut off from any future hope of salvation? Well, Paul answers, absolutely not. They definitely have not. There's definitely a future hope for Israel. Even though a majority of Israel was hardened to the gospel in Paul's day and continues to be, God chose only a remnant. 
He does not intend their fall to be permanent, and he is working through their fall to accomplish his plan of redemption for for the world. And that's what he says, the second part of, of verse 11, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Rather than, rather than their rejection of Christ resulting in God's permanent rejection of them, God worked in their rejection to bring salvation to the Gentiles. By the way, what is a Gentile? Yeah, I think somebody said it. It's someone who's, who's not a Jew. You're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. So that brings up the question, what is, it, what is a Jew? A Jew is someone who's forefather was Abraham, a guy who lived 4,000 years ago, a Middle Easterner, who had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob, and Jacob became Israel. So did the Jews fall in order to be permanently cut off from God? No. Their trespass, their transgression, their, their sin, uh, through that has come salvation to the Gentiles. And saving the Gentiles had a further purpose. And that purpose, as Paul says, is to make them jealous, to make Israel jealous. Really? That's why I got saved, is to make Israel jealous? Well, that's part of it. So we'll talk about that. It is a good thing that God designed to save so many Gentiles, because over the centuries he saved a lot of us by his great mercy. But as he does, he wants his people Israel to be jealous that their God is pouring out his saving blessings to the Gentiles. And for them to want those blessings too. So this is where we're at in God's working out history. His plan for history is this is this is where we are in the timeline. Is Jesus came, He died, He rose again. Some Jews did believe, and some continued to believe. A few, many Gentiles believe, and the Jews are becoming jealous. So that's what God's doing in in the broad sweep of history. That's maybe what you're not going to hear on CNN. The Jewish Jealousy Report today, you're not going to hear that. A 28-year-old Jew named Rich worked for a large corporation in, in New York. From his perspective, Jesus was for the Gentiles and was hostile to the Jews. He, Jesus, was the God of those who killed his people in the Holocaust, so he thought. So he was extremely anti-Christian. Then B.R., a guy named B.R., and that was his name, B.R., initials B.R., from Texas, came on as Rich's supervisor. Rich could see something different about B.R., not to be confused with J.R. He was always in a good mood. He never used curse words. There was a lot of gossip in the office, but B.R. didn't tolerate it. He told people to go to the person if they, if they had a problem with him. What struck Rich most of all was how peaceful and calm B.R. was, no matter what difficult things got, how, how difficult they got at work. One day, he got the courage to ask what made B.R. so different from everyone else. B.R. asked him, well, do you sure you really want the answer? He said he did. So they went into B.R.'s office and closed the door. B.R. began talking to Rich about Jesus. He said Jesus was the Messiah, Pause. What is a Messiah? Messiah simply means the anointed one. It's the one God anointed and appointed to be the Savior through the Jews of the world. So he said to B.R. B.R. said to Rich, Jesus was the Messiah, the one the Jews had been waiting for. 
Rich interrupted him and said, Listen, B.R., Jesus is not the Messiah. My people have been murdered because of Jesus. If Jesus was the Messiah, there would be peace in the world, and there's definitely not peace. If you want to stay my friend, never bring that stuff up again. So, uh, Rich writes, BR never shared about Jesus again with me. He didn't have to. Despite the fact that I discounted everything he said, I couldn't discount that his life provoked me to, to jealousy. I knew he had something I didn't have. God took that seed that BR planted in my heart and used my Gentile wife, who had become a believer in Jesus, to lead me to Jesus. Consider how God can use your life to draw others to Jesus. Thankfully, Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit to enable us to become more and more like him in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. So we're not talking about perfection, but direction and progression in becoming more like Jesus. That's what we long for. That's why we come together to encourage one another in growth and becoming more like Jesus. God is giving us, even assigning us, opportunities every day to, to be the hands, feet, and voice of Christ to those around us. Who has he been placing in your path for you to prompt jealousy that they might want what you have? Or whose path have you been placed in to, to, to tell about Jesus? Of course, it's not us, but Christ in us that we're praying and hoping for people to be drawn to. In God's big picture, what he's doing globally is he's using Gentiles who believe in Christ to make Israel jealous. What is his goal in making Israel jealous? Well, he talks about that in verse 12. Verse 12, now if their trespass, their transgression, means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their, will their full inclusion mean? The Jews' trespass, that is rejecting Jesus as Messiah, became the means of the riches of salvation being given to the world. The failure of the Jews to believe the gospel of Christ meant the Gentiles received the riches of salvation. If salvation for the world resulted from their sin and failure, how much more, and that's very important that you hear those words, how much more will their full inclusion mean, their fullness mean? What is he talking about? What is, what is Israel's fullness? Well, a little bit later in this chapter, in verse 25, and I may have that up on the screen, Paul says that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So that means there's a full number of Gentiles that will be saved. God's not wondering, who am I going to save? Who's going to be saved? He knows the full number that are going to be saved. And he says, when they come in, there's a partial hardening that is Israel is experiencing that will be lifted up, lifted off them. So what Paul is saying in verse 12 is that if by Israel's trespass in rejecting Christ, the riches of salvation have come to the Gentile world, how much greater riches are in store when the full number of Israelites will be saved when they come in. And there is a great number to come, as he says in verse 26. In this way, after all the Gentiles are saved, then a mass of Israel will be saved. And that's what God's doing. 
God is bringing about Israel's fullness of salvation through making them jealous of Christ's saving work among the Gentiles. But what those much more riches are, we'll see in, in a few verses. So Paul asked Paul this question, Why are you so focused on the Gentiles if you yourself are a Jew? Don't you want to win them to Christ? In verses 13 and 14, he says, Yeah, I'm, I'm talking to you Gentiles. I'm talking to you in the church of Rome. Yes, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, and I magnify my ministry. What is he, what is he saying? How does he do that? I magnify my ministry by working hard to win as many Gentiles to Jesus as I can and to establish churches among them. But I haven't turned my back on my Jews, my Jewish brothers, my fellow Jews. Rather, I magnify my ministry to the Gentiles to, in some way, make them jealous and save some of them. So Paul has his, his target on saving Gentiles in order to make his fellow Jews jealous, to bring them to himself, to bring them to Christ. Does it seem that making someone jealous for Jesus sounds like we could start a new ministry, jealous for Jesus, is an unworthy motivation? We usually don't think of jealousy as a good thing. Jealousy is kind of a rotten feeling, isn't it, a lot of times. So it's kind of hard to to say, hey, let's make the Jews jealous for Jesus. But when the thing that you're jealous for is a relationship that is good and right and legitimate, then being jealous that you don't have it is right. I believe that even among Gentile Christian communities, God uses the gift of gospel jealousy to provoke his church to seek fresh movements of Christ. The church in America can be jealous of how God is working in places throughout Asia and the Middle East, actually, today. There's a lot going on in a more robust way than is going on here in many ways. So I had that driven home to me this week by my friend, uh, Roderick Gilbert. He's an Indian gentleman. He has an American, he has an English name, but he's Indian. He's, he's leading a mission movement in India. Uh, several of you have been here when he's spoken to us a couple times. So he's, he's in the States, and he stopped in. And um, he's leading this, this movement of churches and disciple multiplication in northern India. What is happening in northern India? Hundreds of baptisms daily. Gospel spreading like crazy. Disciples multiplying and gathering into cell groups and, and thousands of house churches being planted. Healings taking place. We should be jealous for seeing the work of multiplying disciples here in the Spirit's power. We should want that to happen. Roderick's friend, Roger, who was with him, and I both agreed that we desire God to do here what he's doing in India, not duplicated in the exact same way what's going on there, because it's a different setting, different culture, different people. But but the same power that's at work there, we want to see working here. So the point is, even among Christian communities, there is a good jealousy that God uses to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, to fresh vision and zeal and desire for gospel progress in lives in Christ to be glorified. So yes, let Israel be jealous that they are missing out on salvation from sin and judgment and eternal life. That's serious. That's not just a, well, I, I, I prefer my religion and you've got your religion. We're, we're not talking about religion. We're talking about eternal life and, and deliverance from judgment and enjoying the, the rich blessings of Christ's kingdom that he will establish when he 
when he returns. Jesus was a Jewish Messiah, so it's just inviting them to embrace the Messiah who came to save them. Why would they forsake God's promised blessings and inheritance? Well, Paul says in verse 15, For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So Paul's saying the reason he seeks to make his fellow Jews jealous and save some of them is in anticipation of the great climax to God's plan of redemption for the world. As Paul said in verse 12, though Israel has sinned in rejecting Jesus, yet through that trespass, riches of salvation have come to the world. And if their failure meant riches of salvation for the Gentiles, yet there is a fullness of Israel that will be saved, after which will come much greater riches for the world. Now Paul gets more specific about what those greater riches of salvation will be. He says, if God's rejection of Israel means reconciliation for the world, what will God's acceptance of them mean but life from the dead? In this part of redemptive history of God's plan of redemption, God has rejected Israel. And at least one of you should say, hey, but back in verse 1, Paul says, did God reject Israel? And he says, no way, they didn't. So which is it? Did, is he rejecting Israel or, or what's, what's the true story there? What he was saying there, he did not permanently reject Israel, but he's temporarily um, only redeeming a, a fragment of them, a, a remnant of them. And so the rejection is not permanent. And amazingly, God has so worked that through his rejection of Israel to bring reconciliation to the world, this doesn't mean that everyone in the world will be reconciled to God. It does mean that reconciliation is available for, for the world because of, of what happened with the Jews. So what is God's acceptance of Israel then? What does he mean, accepting Israel? It will be when the full number of Gentiles who are, are to be saved have come in, which he talks about in verse 25. Israel's hardening is removed and all Israel is saved, as he says in verse 26. So what is this life from the dead that Paul says will result from God's acceptance of Israel? Because that's what he says. God accepts Israel, and then that means life from the dead for the world. Some think this just this means a more spiritual life is, is uh, spreading due to the spread of the gospel. But Paul's wording indicates that he is saying that God's acceptance of Israel will result in something more than spiritual salvation. Again, verse 12, how much more will this mean for the world when Israel is saved? And since Israel's acceptance follows the salvation of the Gentiles who will be saved, life from the dead means the bodily resurrection, the bodily resurrection of those who have been saved. Israel's accepted by God. They come in fullness. They're saved in mass. And much more benefit comes to the world. So there's much more benefit coming to the world after Israel is saved in large measure. Now, Paul isn't laying out his complete view of all future things. He's just focusing on the resurrection. As, as Paul said in chapter 8, if Christ is in you, though you will still die physically, yet God will give life to your mortal body through the Spirit. Resurrection was the hope of the early church, and Paul talked about that when he was on trial. Hey, Paul, why, why is everybody opposed to you? He said, I don't know. All I did was teach the hope of Israel, the hope that we've all longed for, the resurrection from the dead. So that was like the centerpiece of, of what Paul was, was teaching and preaching. 
resurrection of Christ, the resurrection from the dead for, for those who believe. So aren't you glad if you believe in Christ, you won't just live forever as a spirit? You ever think about that? Rather, you will be given an immortal body. You'll be given a great, awesome body. You'll be in all the catalogs. <laughs> a body that can never get sick or old or die ever. Our future is in not some cloudy, ethereal world. Not some murky, spiritual world only but ultimately a new heavens and a new earth, a gloriously perfect physical world that we're set up for, that we're optimized for through new resurrected bodies. The tree of life will be there. It's going to be Eden expanded, Eden enhanced. Enhanced Eden. Better than ever. Like you never knew it before, Eden. You will never be bored. You will never stop learning. It will be a world of perfect and increasing love and joy. Can you handle that? Or do you need nasty stuff in order for life to be interesting? We can't imagine that. After 10,000 years, after 10 million years, after 1 billion years, set your watch to this, you'll still be experiencing new and amazing things about God and about his people. It will be millions and millions of times better than Disneyland. <laughs> and the Grand Canyon and the most awesome place that you can think of. Sorry, Rachel. This glorious future for us in the resurrection will be launched when Israel's fullness is realized, when she's no longer rejected but accepted. Why is it so certain in spite of her failure and rejection, God will bring Israel to fullness and acceptance? Paul begins to talk about that in verse 16. How has God made it so certain his plan for Israel will be fulfilled? Well, here's the answer. He's talking about bread and trees. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And you say, thank you. That's not helpful. <laughs> How do dough and trees guarantee hope for Israel? Well, in the book of Numbers, which I don't know when the last time you read that is, but Numbers chapter 15, God said Israelites, after they entered the promised land, were to give to the Lord a contribution of the first part of the lump of dough that they would use to bake their bread. So Paul's point is that if the first fruits of the, of the dough is holy, so is the whole batch or the whole lump of dough holy. He then presents a, a similar metaphor saying that if the root of the tree is holy, then so are the branches holy. If, you're, if your tree has root rot, then your tree isn't going to live. If your tree has healthy roots, it can live. All right, so that still doesn't help. That's, that's nice. All right, the first fruits of the bread of dough and the root of the tree are, are the patriarchs. Does that help? Still not? A little bit? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
He's going to make good on those promises. That's the, that's why God is so certainly going to to bring Israel to full salvation and bring resurrection to all who are in Christ because he made promises to Abraham. He promised to Abraham and his descendants would he would bless them, make of them a great nation. Israel is set apart for God's blessing. They would be a blessing to the world. God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the reason he has not finally rejected Israel and why there is hope for their salvation beyond a small remnant in the future. So what has God's faithfulness to Israel because of his promise to Abraham got to do with you? Everything. Everything. In Romans 4, Paul says the believers in Christ are children of Abraham along with the Jews. We will inherit all the blessings God will give in the resurrection, the kingdom, the new heavens and earth. God's promise of these things rests on grace, and so it's guaranteed to all because it's not, it's not rested upon how good Israel was. They, they blew it. We continue to blow it, so it's not rested upon how well we do. It's rested upon God's promise, upon his word. And, his prom- and specifically his promise to Abraham. So if, if God doesn't keep his promise to Israel because they have become disqualified, we don't have certainty that he will keep his promise to us if we fall into sin. We might stumble so as to fall and be rejected by God too because we don't have it in us on our own to be faithful. If God is willing and able to fulfill his saving plan for his people who had centuries of spiritual privilege, who yet rejected God's Son, who came to fulfill God's promise to them, then God is an incredibly merciful God who can still save those who have turned their backs on Christ and His church by drawing them to Jesus. God is able to save those who have turned their backs on Him. We should be amazed at God's incredible plan to use the failure of His chosen people, Israel, to save those who were far from Him. That's us which in turn would provoke them to jealousy, which will eventually lead to the, their fullness of salvation. We can't make, who, you can't make the story up. I mean, who would ever write a story like this? God's plan of salvation. It's awesome and encouraging and humbling to know that God is working out his saving plan for each of our lives with the destiny of nations. Your life is not one of random events leading who knows where. Your life is far from random. It feels like stuff happens and it's just random, but it's absolutely not. God has got you dialed into his global plan to save the people for his name. I understand that that maxes out your understanding because I don't understand it either. Paul didn't understand it. That's why in verse 33 he goes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable Ununderstandable are his ways. Yeah, you can't, you can't screw it. It's inscrutable. Thankfully, he made his way of salvation really clear. So if, if some of this gets your brain off into who knows where, Romans 10.9, this is what you need to know. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, And that means you recognize Jesus as Lord over everything and everyone, and he deserves our worship, and he alone can save. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, 
then you are saved. You will be saved. You will be saved if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised from the dead. So that's really simple. Very clear. What God promises in his word, he is absolutely able and faithful to fulfill. Israel was not infallible. The church was not infallible. You and I are not infallible. The Pope is not infallible. The Supreme Court is not infallible. There's only one infallible person in the universe, and that's God. And he's given us his infallible word to promise that, he's, that we can hold him to. You say, God, you promised us you're going to do it. Only God and his word are infallible. Anything opposed to his word will fail. But God is fully able to save his people from rejection and bring us all the way to resurrection. Let's pray. Father, you are amazing. You are good. You are faithful. You don't do things like we think you should do, and we're grateful for that. You take a Middle Eastern man born 4,000 years ago. You make promise to him that he's going to, you're going to bless the world through his descendants. His descendants perpetually turn their back on you and, and fail you again and again and again. And you bring out of them the Savior King for the world, Jesus, and you guarantee that you're still going to save them. And in the process of their failure and their sin, you save us out of our failure and our sin. And in the process, we make them jealous and they turn to you in mass and, and you're going to save them in, in a huge way in the future. And then we're all resurrected and we're, we're, we're with you forever. That's an awesome plan. Only you can do it. Father, I pray the, the, this truth about how you're working. And the world gives us hope. Makes sense of, of all the senseless craziness that's going on in the world, in the Middle East in particular. You will one day stop all of that. You're, it's not your plan to stop it now, but it is your plan to save us, to grant us a relationship with you now through faith in your Son who, as we celebrated around the table, because of his coming into this world, taking on human flesh, dying in, as, a, as a man, but also the Son of God, being raised again, getting victory over sin and death, and sending your spirit, you are about spreading this good news, this gospel, and redeeming a people for your name. Thank you. Thank you. We love you. In Christ we pray. Amen.